This week on the Off the Crossbar Podcast, we welcome back a longtime friend of the show, fan favorite, and one of my good buddies, Gavin Prout. He's a Canadian icon and a Whitby legend, but why is he not in the NLL Hall of Fame yet? We'll ask him. Plus, some tough news from the CLA. All that and more on OTCB. What is good, lacrosse fans, and welcome back to another edition of the Off the Crossbar podcast here on Lacrosse Flash, SoundCloud, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your learning and listening on, that's where you can find us. My name is Teddy Jenner. Appreciate you being with us once again. Hopefully you're staying safe and healthy, and the weather is beautiful wherever you are, and you can get outside and get some socially responsible distancing in, see some friends, some families, and be safe, but kind of get back to a bit of a routine. Unfortunately, my normal summer routine and many lacrosse fans and players' summer routines continually get dashed almost weekly now as news continues to trickle down about what we can and cannot do. And it looks like there will be no national championships whatsoever up here in Canada. No man, no founders, no prez, no minto, no national championships at the minor level. So safe to say, there's not a lot of box across being played around the world right now. There's still hope, although it if you remember when we talked with the commissioner last week, they are on a bit of a deadline. We're nearing, you know, we're about a month away from that deadline. And if they can't secure at least a possibility of a place to play, that is a major issue. And if players can't get across the border, that is another major issue. And they have to get it done before all these guys' visas expire. So uh, the time crunch is on. Uh, if you are a Twitter head uh, or sleuthing the internet, uh, there was an article put out by a newspaper in upstate New York talking about how the NLL has possibly reached out to the Times Arena in Albany about possibly using that as a location. Yes, that they have reached out. It is a possibility. But again, like we talked about, no real progress can be made uh, until players can freely cross the border and... If you recall, and this is an issue NHL, the NHL will run into as well, that there is still, I believe, um, the rules that if you cross the border from the U.S. into Canada, you have to go into 14-day self-quarantine. So that would mean that any player, say they wanted to do it somewhere in Canada, but say they did, all those players from the U.S. that came up here would have to go into 14-day quarantine. So there's another two weeks that you wouldn't be able to play. So there are a lot of things working against the National Lacrosse League, the NHL, NBA, all the major sports. Um, obviously, the NLL is in a much tougher position uh, because of the time crunches that they are on. So 
the light at the end of the tunnel becomes darker every passing week. But I'm still keeping my fingers crossed that something can be done. Somewhere there is a saving savior and a silver lining in all this. Maybe the silver lining is my golf game will get better and Bear and I will go on for more walks. Who knows? Um, so that's the news out of the Canadian Lacrosse Association. Uh, if you haven't listened to Lax class from this week, they had uh, the new president of the CLA, Sean Williams, on. Uh, it's a great little interview. Uh, just talking about some of the things that he would like to see and possibly change. Uh, and I agree with Jake when he said that there needed to be new blood. I had no idea that Joey Harris had run the CLA for 16 years. That's crazy to me. And, you know, it kind of makes sense that the CLA wheels had slowly stopped turning and things started to become stale. And I'm not saying that's Joey's fault, but 16 years under one leadership, there's not a lot of new ideas coming out. So hopefully Sean Williams can impose some things. But again, um, like he mentions in that interview, it's not like they can just write something in and the rules change. There is a, I believe, a two-year vetting process for any rule changes to go through. So... He's got a lot of work ahead of him, and it's not like I don't think we'll see any big changes soon, but hopefully there are some minor tweaks and changes across the CLA um, that can make our sport rejuvenate itself, regain some momentum, and keep kids playing uh, what is one of the greatest, if not the greatest sport of all time. Speaking of greatest of all time, Gavin Prout. Now, he's not going to be up there in the GOAT conversation of all lacrosse players but um he's probably maybe the goat of whitby he is one of my favorite teammates if it was only for one semester sorry one season down at mercyhurst um one of the most competitive people i've ever met he will do whatever it takes to win um, he is an incredible leader. I, I was trying to think of um, players to liken him to in other sports, and the one that comes to mind is Jerome Ginla. And just a consummate leader, leads both on the floor and off the floor, um, picks his teammates up when they need him. If he needs to fight, he'll fight. Uh, if they need a big goal, he'll go get that goal. Uh, he's got one more title. Well, actually, he's got a lot more titles than Iggy, I believe. Um, although Iggy's probably got some world juniors and worlds and Olympics in there. So maybe he's got Gavin's number there. But that's when I watch Gavin Pro play and I watch Jerome McGinley play. That's the type of player I, I see. Those are the types of players you want leading your team. And Gavin Prout has led wherever he has gone. Um, he has a Minto, a man. A world outdoor, a world indoor, an NLL title, check that, two Mintos, and count them four, four major league lacrosse titles. And he wishes that he would have had an NCAA title. But unfortunately, that slipped his grasp. We should have stayed at Mercyhurst. We probably could have won if all of those Whitby guys would have stayed. 
quick story. So our first year at Mercyhurst, it was, um, I was there with a, a couple other Western guys, but the Whitby group that was in Mercyhurst was Prouder, Steve Voituck, Derek Sudden, Zach Aiken, Paul Sally. We had those five guys, and they were four of the best players in Canada at the time. I believe, yeah, they were all on the U19 world team that went to Japan, and Voituck, I think, was all-world midfield that tournament. So we're all at Mercyhurst, and our program is D1 the first year we go there, and we are a brutal D1 program. We're like a three, Mercyhurst, for those that don't know, is like a 3,000-student liberal arts college. Um, and we just couldn't compete against the Virginias and Carolinas and, and all those big D1 schools. Like, if, like we were losing like Radford and, and the smaller school, the smaller big D1 schools. So after our freshman year and we were getting just pumped by everybody, the school made the decision, make us go D2. They flipped the hockey team to D1. It was the best decision for both programs. But with that decision, our head coach, Pete Ginniger, um, decided to leave the school. He went to our literal crosstown rival, Gannon, and started a D1 lacrosse program there. And he took uh, Paul Sally, Zach Aiken, Derek Suddens, and Gavin Prout with him. And I believe our goaltender, Derek Kravitz, might have gone with him. That part I can't remember. Um, but four of the five Whitby guys all bailed. And we went to D2. And if we would have had those guys in D2, we would have been unstoppable. But they all go to Gannon. Gannon's program is terrible. Uh, so uh, I think it crumbled after one year. And I don't, I think Sally and Aiken might have stayed or they might have gone back home. Actually, Paul Sally, I think, married an, an eerie girl. Man, this is a long, short story. Anyway. Um, Derek Suddens goes to Hartford and where Tracy Kluski went and then Gavin Prout made a decision to go to Loyola and that kind of helped propel him onto a larger scale. As I said, he was pretty well known in Canada at the time and that just kind of helped him propel him onto the, uh, world scene a little bit more in the American scene. And he was a fantastic college player, a fantastic junior player. But once he got into the senior ranks in the NLL, his stock rose. He helped Colorado to an NLL title in 2006. And boy, were there some characters and stories from that. But we talk so much more. Um, we talk about Jim Bishop, one of the all-time great coaches and personalities in the game of lacrosse. We talk about the Whitby crew and growing up with your best friends all the way from minor through junior and senior and winning titles with all of those guys. We talk about life in Whitby. The guy has almost as many properties as he does titles. He is Gavin Prout, and he's right here on the Off the Crossbar podcast. I'm sure he's probably had three or four Grand Marniers already, but we don't criticize or judge here on the podcast. It's Gavin Prout, a soon-to-be Hall of Famer. How are you, brother? I'm doing well, buddy. How about yourself? Uh, I cannot complain. Um, is Hall of Fame on your radar? Uh, baby steps, I think. And, uh, we started with the Whippy one. Um, it was a couple of years ago and we're working on the Ontario one. And hopefully, uh, one day, uh, you know, sun shines in the right direction. I may end up in either the NLL or maybe the Canadian one. Who knows? Maybe even the MLL 
Hall of Fame, if there even is one. We'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, it's good to talk to you, buddy. Uh, we had a little Zoom chat with the Mammoth boys talking about the 06 title. I haven't seen you in a couple of years, but um, how are you doing uh, during all this wild and crazy time? Well, I want to first and foremost say it's been an honor to be able to uh, speak to you twice this day. Oh, so, you know, it's just too it's, often. Too often. It's, it's, it's now I have to kind of set a precedent at this point. So I expect at least two calls a, a month uh, from now on. But let me you, uh, let me ask my father how much inheritance I have left, and I might be able to boost <laughs> my phone bill. And that then I call you twice a week. Twice a week, maybe. maybe that would be awesome. Maybe right, WhatsApp me. You WhatsApp me or something. Ah, done. I can do that. <laughs> done. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, this. You know, uncertain times or whatnot. We uh, we've been staying pretty steady with work. Uh, being a uh, health insurance uh, brokerage, we are considered an essential service. So at that point, we uh, we haven't really shut down uh, our doors per se. Um, myself, I'm working in a different location. We got a couple people that are working outside the office. And trying to keep our distance inside the office. But uh, besides that, um, I have uh, three properties that uh, that I own. So that kind of takes a lot of my time, or free time, if you will, uh, just maintaining, uh, renovating, uh, those types of things. And even a fourth one, if you include my, my family's uh, hobby farm. So it takes a lot of time getting uh, the contractors in gear and, and keeping things organized that way. But I enjoy it. It's Allows me to see what's somewhat sober and out of trouble. You're not a slumlord, are you? No, I wish I was, but I am not. <laughs> what what kind of properties do you have? Uh, well, I have one up in uh, the beautiful town of Blue Mountains at Blue Mountain Resorts. Um, that's kind of just a. Where's that? That sets up in um, just north, uh, I guess northwest of Barrie, uh, okay. about two hours from Whitby. Mm-hmm. So that's and they have a it's no Whistler by any means, but it's a four season resort. They have ski hills there, and they hiking and biking, and uh, you know they have a little village and whatnot. So it's a nice little uh, getaway area if uh, you're looking to do st- those types of things. And uh, if, you're into, just, if you're into that kind of stuff, if you're into that stuff, yeah, that outdoorsy yeah. stuff. Yeah. Uh, last year I purchased a, a, a cottage uh, that's out in Bancroft. So. Uh, getting that fixed up and, uh, you know, kind of updated. Uh, it hadn't really been touched in you know, about 30 years, it seems. So mm. there's a lot of renovations that needed to be done uh, for myself and, and my mother, who's been helping me out tremendously. Yeah. And uh, that's on a lake. So if you like doing those types of things, that's always available. Yeah. And then uh, the one that I permanently live at out in Oshawa, that's, you know, just one of my hobby places that I, I hang out in every once in a while. And I <laughs> Putting the dungeon back up and running, so any of the boys who want to come by, and once this COVID is done, we'll uh, we'll have some fun. What? Okay. The dungeon? <laughs> are we okay? Huh. Are we talking like Stu Hart dungeon, or are we talking Fifty Shades of Grey dungeon? Like, what are we talking here? Well, it's a it's a man cave. Um, oh, okay. That kind of dungeon. It's yeah. It's not. It's always called a dungeon because when they get down there, it's uh, they don't never want to leave, so it kind of traps uh-huh. them in there. I've got. Uh, golden TV video game, uh, arcade oh game my. down there. I got uh, another another arcade game that has fifteen thousand different games in it. Um, dartboards and pool tables and and beer pong and you know large TVs. You name it, it's down there. Kind of the uh, the, the bachelor wow. life in me that kept me up and running and keeping myself busy uh, at home. 
Okay, I'm moving in. When my my winter <laughs> home will be in uh, Oshawa with you, and I will become a dungeon head. Sound good? That's uh, you can be the the, the chamber dungeon of, master. Dungeon master. Dungeon master. Yeah. Dungeon master for sure. All right. So easy to say. Lacrosse uh, treated you well to get to this point. No. Yes. Maybe. Oh, was that a question? I thought you were just making <laughs> no, a statement. No, it, 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 it was sort of a statement. But yeah, I was hoping you were going to inflect at the end up. there with a question. So usually the country did well. Yeah. No, it has. Uh, absolutely. Um, I mean, I dedicated my the majority of my life, 30, 35 years to lacrosse. Um, you know, all the hard work and, and the blood and the sweat and the tears. And uh, it's all kind of paid off in the end. I'm I'm happy with how things went in my career for the most part. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I'm in a position now where I'm, I'm trying to give back to the game and, and coaching with the Steelhawks and, and helping, uh, you know, G and Derek Suddens with some young guys, and different teams around. Whenever they ask me to come up with practice, I try to make it as much as possible. Just uh, it still brings a joy to my, my life and the smile to my face. Um, let's start at the beginning. Uh, you're a Whitby guy through and through, uh, grew up, in the Whippy Miners, played for the Whippy Warriors, uh, became a Whippy robot under Jim Bishop. How did, you get your, how did you get your start? Who was the guy that first put a stick in your hand? Well, uh, it was a an old my father's uh, old neighborhood friend. Uh, his name was Dave Webb. Uh, his son was Paul Webb, my age, but it was uh, you know kind of a a story where I was uh, I alluded to it a little bit on the Mammoth. Uh, chats there but we uh i was basically uh looking to be a soccer star and my dad wanted to be me to be the next uh, pele or or whoever else you're idolizing but uh when i was four or five years of age um as i mentioned earlier the the coach decided that i was a much better defenseman meaning i'd never see the ball because the ball was always in, i pretty much sucked at a soccer by the, sound of it. <laughs> by the end of the day uh my dad kind of got you know, a little angry about it, pissed off, if you will, and went up to the coach and said, you know what, I think he's going to be better utilized on the offense. And the coach said, no, he's perfect right where he is. And my dad turns around, <laughs> I'm sitting on the ground picking dandelions. And he's like, that's it. Um, you know, I've had enough. So just literally mid-game, walks into the field, picked me up, tossed me <laughs> And he's like, we're out of here. So I, uh, on our way to the car, uh, we'd seen Dave Webb, and it, it's uh, kind of a, a large park. It has an outdoor box rink in there and a soccer field, and a couple of baseball fields and whatnot. But um, as we were walking there, Dave called my dad over. So, uh, you know, my dad being all pissed off at the world at that point, thinking that his, his soccer star is now done. And I got to find something better to do with my life at the ripe age of four. Um, realized that, you know, maybe we'll try this sport and put a stick in my hand. And it's been in there ever since. Who is your best best friend growing up best best friend growing up i would probably say uh paul webb or um you know paul sally you know i was hoping you were going to say paul sally you know i maybe ted jenner as soon as no 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 we didn't (laughs) need until 97 that's that's third life that's third life yeah like no yeah growing up with paul you guys were probably pretty close eh? yeah yeah, you know what we uh, that whole team when we grew up, um, you know when you play together since you were you know eight or nine years of age all the way up through twenty twenty one twenty two. Yeah, uh, 
you either you either love each other or hate each other. And, and you know, fortunately enough, that entire team seemed to really get along well. There really weren't any outsiders. Um, we all kind of just had a good time together. Families were all connected well, and, and yeah. parents got a, got along well. So when you see each other every day, which is what we did every single summer, we practiced two hours every single day and uh, rode bikes together and, and hung out afterwards. They become family, and it's you yeah. know, almost like a brotherhood. And it was just uh, I was fortunate to have you know, 18, 19, 20 different brothers uh, on any given team, and, uh, and it was uh, it was made everything so much easier. You know, going getting up to go to practice, it was logical because he wanted to be there, and everybody wanted to be there. It wasn't a chore anymore, and so it was uh, it was definitely something that I looked forward to. The first experience I had playing against you guys and that group of guys was at Canadian Field Nationals, uh, and you guys were the Oshawa Blue Knights, and that was you know. That's when I first ran into you and Voitak and, and Sudsy and Zach Aiken and Sally and all those guys. When did you kind of first know that whole group was going to be together for a while? I think when uh, when Bishop took over, uh, yeah. there was guys that were up and down in between the A team and the B team that we always crossed paths at the arenas or whatnot and, and kept in touch that way. But um, I, I think Jim Bishop, his his, I guess – mantra would be you know keep as many of these players together as possible and let them grow together and mature together and and basically be inside each other's heads for the most part knowing what the mm-hmm. next guy's you know the longer you are with somebody it's almost you can finish your sentences same as lacrosse you can finish the plays you, you kind of mind read at points and you can go through it as you alluded to earlier like a robot which is what mm-hmm. we were kind of thought to be um you know, just this is the way it is, and you knew exactly where the next guy is going to be on that shift, on that second, or anticipating where he's going to be in the next two seconds. It all came pretty natural to us after a while. For those that don't know, Jim Bishop is a Canadian lacrosse icon, um, one of the, the greatest coaches and personalities and people our sport has ever known. Um, he's really, you know, instrumental in, in making the game what it's kind of transferred into today. What's your favorite memory of him and how much did he mean to your development? Well, I think um, my favorite memory was when we, we won together in, in 1997. I think that was truly one of the uh, the pinnacle points in our career, our young careers at the time as a team. Sure, we won a bunch of minor lacrosse tournaments and, and the Ontario Championships and those types of things, but that was against like your own age group where we dominated for so long that it was just second nature. And then when you get up to the, the next level, which is the junior A level, um, and him bringing his young guys up with them and coaching that team for the four years, three and a half years, whatever it was. And, and, um, and then all of a sudden all the hard work and he realized that it's, you know, we all graduated up together. We became a team, including some of the older guys who respected Jim um, but once he saw the smile on his face after he won in 97 and, and all the hard work that, you know, finally has, has as I mentioned, come to fruition, it's, uh, I think that was one of my most favorite parts. And, you know, he, he wasn't just a coach. Uh, what people don't understand is he, he didn't just teach us how to play lacrosse. He was a, he was a mentor. He taught us how to be good people. He taught us, uh, you know, work ethic and dedication. Um, uh, if you can imagine this, this man, uh, 70 years of age, uh, still worked every day 
but before work, four hours, he coached two teams. He did two hours with us every morning and two hours with another team every morning. Um, so if you can imagine dedication out in the heat when you're 70, 72, mm-hmm. 73, 74, um, he was just that type of individual and he just loved the game and, and it really showed. Um, Bish was also the head coach of the, the Green Gales that won seven Mintos in a row that were just named uh, the greatest team of all time in the uh, lacrosse classified who you got bracket. So he's been around this game for quite a long time. And I remember um, when he passed away, uh, a good buddy of yours, a former teammate, Jason Ward, was in the NHL playing for the Habs. And he had wrote his name on his stick, and they had actually made a pretty good uh, deal about it on TSN. Um, how big of a loss was that for the lacrosse community? Well, it, it's tremendous. It's uh, you can kind of for for a more recent loss like a, a Terry Sanderson, mm-hmm. uh, you know, who meant the world to Orangeville lacrosse, and then and then came up through the NLL and and had a very good pedigree as a coach, and you know, even as a player, he was feared. Uh, but losing those types of people that aren't aren't just coaches, but as we mentioned, they're mentors, and they um, you know they're around. They almost seem like they're always around uh, the yeah. lacrosse arena. Uh, it's just definitely nobody can fill the shoes. It's it's one of the things where unfortunately, he, I believe he was taken too early. But at the end of the day, he did he definitely left his his mark on lacrosse, and it's it's truly a, a positive and a, a positive mark that uh, he left. You mentioned the '97 Minto. I've always meant to thank you for being in that Minto because it allowed me to win a Canadian Junior Field Lacrosse Championship. Because <laughs> all you guys were in the Minto, so you couldn't play. So your team was terrible. Um, so I've always meant to thank you for that. But um, that was against uh, the Burnaby Lakers, kind of um, early on uh, the first few years of that dynasty. Um, you guys were uh, an incredible team. Uh, you had Bud Y in that. You had G Nash. Was, did G start and then Bud came in, or did Bud start and G came in? Well, when we uh, when we were playing when we were younger, it was uh, it was I think it basically split their time. Yeah. Um, coming into the playoffs, it was it was Bud Light. Uh, we always called him Bud. Bud, Bud Light, Light. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. It was it was Bud's, uh, Bud Wise turn. Uh, I mean, he he played outstanding in in the Mintos. Um, he wasn't Jim's first choice by any means. G was always yeah. kind of, uh, you know, groomed to be that, that goaltender, which he was good enough to play. Absolutely. But, uh, it, when Bud was older, uh, I think he's two years older than we are, maybe more now. Um, I'm not, I can't remember exactly, but he was always number one. G was number two and mm-hmm. the number two still got a, a plenty, plenty of playing time. And it wasn't like a, an NHL where you see every fourth or fifth or sixth game. It was, you know, it was one and one A and one B type of thing, and they, and they both deserved it. How special was that Minto? Because that's your only one, right? Uh, no, I won one in '99 as well. Oh, two years later. So, so how much more? How how special was that first one? Because, like you talked about, that's a group of guys that through your whole junior career and your minor career you were with. How special yeah. was that with all those buddies? Yeah, well, when it came to 97 was special because we won it with Jim. Um, right. You know, that was that was one of the main memories that that I had. Uh, our uh, basically one of the last winning cha- with the last winning championship he ever had, mm-hmm. uh, as he passed away in 98. Um, but 99 was was also very special to me um, because it's exactly how you defined it there, where all those younger players that we did play with before that may maybe weren't good enough 
earlier on in the years to be on the junior team, yeah. they all got to play again because all the older guys had now graduated to the senior league right? and there was spots open on the team. So they were filled up quickly by all the guys that we used to remember playing with. We had seen them a couple of years and then to go on and win that championship together again. Uh, some of this, some of those guys, it was their last championship as well. Cause they, they kind of stopped playing lacrosse after that. And um, it was, it was kind of all the hard work and, and dedication and everything just came in and, and uh, um, flowed into the, the championship. And, and it was truly, uh, uh, I, it still is tough to describe, you know, the feeling mm-hmm. that it's one thing that Colin Doyle always said it before, what's like your favorite championship. He's won so many. Yeah. That, you know, the minor peewee championship, uh, yeah. No, it's not the end of the NLLs or any of the MLLs. It's because he won that with all of his buddies that he grew up playing with. And I, I kind of feel the same way in the 99, where finally, once again, all those guys got to experience another championship together, which was amazing. That's how I feel about my 05 Man Cup versus the 03. 03, we had a bunch of the old guards still there. And then 05, yep. it was all the guys that I grew up with that I got to, you know, played minor with and junior with and played early on the NLO with. And that, that is really what, what makes those memories special. But sometimes you remember the losses even more. What's the most bitter loss in your career of all, well, like I, all, all, all lacrosse, not just junior? Well, I mean, I've been fortunate enough that, uh, well, there was the 2002 World Games. Um, mm-hmm. That was a tough one to handle. The field lacrosse team when we were in Australia and, um, we, we went up by a goal and, and the stick was called illegal and the goal got called back and right. they went on the power play and scored the next and they won by two type of thing. So it was, uh, that was kind of a bitter one. And, and then Who's, whose course, stick was illegal? Uh, JT. I don't want to oh, play in the bus, I, but, uh, oh. <laughs> yeah, but you know what? Probably all of ours were because they were all. Oh, because you guys were all using box pinches. Yeah, you had yeah. one of the worst pinches of all time. <laughs> you mean the best? You mean the best? Yeah, pinch. sorry, the best. Yeah. The best pinch. Uh, there's that one, and then the '98. I think we we saw flat um, after Jim died. Uh, it was um, we lost the Six Nations in the finals, and I think that that was a uh, a loss that we all took pretty hard in. in I think, in my opinion, we should have ran away with that series. But, you know, hats off to Six Nations. They they came and, and overachieved, in my opinion, and, and beat us. And, and I think we came back, gave us a little bit more grit in the 99 series and uh, and made us, you know, that much better in 99. Did your love for Grand Marnier start in Erie, Pennsylvania? It started out as a baby. My mom used to put it in my bottle. <laughs> really? Quiet. No, no, no. <laughs> hey, trust me. You drink it so often and so easily, I wouldn't doubt that. Uh, no, it's. I mean, it's. Uh, it was kind of based on uh, stages in life. It was funny because uh, when I went to Mercyhurst with you, we were we were poor. Like we were super yeah. poor kids, and we relied on on working. In Mercyhurst, as I think I was a vacuum or a maintenance guy or something, yeah. and that was you know all we could afford was like Canadian Leaf, and nobody's heard of that stuff. Trust me. But or and then the, then I graduated. You know, I got a little bit of money and went up, graduated to Canadian Mist, and then we finally got the Canadian Club, and then we got the oh. Crown Royal, and then all of a sudden I made it. Um, 
it went to Tuaka. Uh, that's the American drink for those Canadians. And then I had nowhere else to go. So the next bottle up on the next level was Grand Marnier. <laughs> just stuck with it. <laughs> um, uh, I've always meant to ask you this. Another question I've always meant to ask you, because like you mentioned, uh, you, me, uh, Brent Crusado, Zach Aiken, Derek Sutton, Paul Sally, Boycott, uh, Bellamy, Ryan O'Connor, Bruce, like there was a crew of us at Mercyhurst in those first few years. And then yep. the program decided to go D2, and those guys kind of jumped ship, and you all kind of went to Gannon. Yep. Um, no loyalty. Feel, right? <laughs> yeah, like, okay, and I'm, you know what? I get that. That program was going back to D1. You kind of followed Pete Ginniger. Yep. But then you go to Loyola. How come you didn't try to work a deal for me and you as a package? Like, I that would have been, that. you know, you really dropped the ball there. I know, man. I know. I, that, that's on me. I actually yeah, mentioned that uh, to Syracuse first when they when they went came and called, and uh, they said they were they were good at the time. Uh, <laughs> they didn't need any more left-handers. So they like, were okay. like, "No, nah, we're good." Yeah, <laughs> so fair enough. I kind of dropped the uh, the ball in Loyola. It was like, um, so quick. Why, why Loyola? Why did that one win out? Well. They have a, a very strong business school, which is what I was looking to graduate with. Um, they're, they're selling your school of business is one of the best in the country. Yeah. Um, their lacrosse team at the time was number one in the nation. You know, they were one and two the past couple of years before I was there. And then Syracuse, you, you know, given mm-hmm. could be Hopkins, any given week is something different. But they were always up in the tops. Um, and just the way when I went down there, the, the school, the smaller school, um, I didn't want to go down and feel overwhelmed. And Syracuse is, you know, you got hundreds of people in classes, you know, yeah. this one had 20 to 25. It was similar to Mercyhurst and Gannon at that point where the student teacher ratio was, was a good fit for me. Yeah. Um, you kind of need to keep on top of me for me to, you know, stay focused. And, um, you know, their lacrosse program, the coaches, you know, he really showed me the definition of recruiting. You know, Dave Cottle came and sat down with my family and, and came, my, came to Gannon and, and brought me down a number of times to, Mercy, or to, sorry, to Loyola. Um, so he was truly showing interest. And I thought, you know what, if this guy's not interested, there must be something that I can bring to the table um, that they're looking for and, and where I can succeed and, and be a part of a, a winning tradition. And so he just kind of out-recruited everybody else. And I'm, I'm mm-hmm. happy I made that decision, even though we didn't win an NCAA championship. Um, just the friendships that I've kept there. And, um, you know, I graduated with a couple of degrees and then they're highly sought after. If I went down there, they'd still, you know, I'd be hireable at least. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, uh, yeah, at the end of the day, it was it was kind of the size of the, the the campus, where the campus was in Baltimore, uh, they're well known for the lacrosse prowess, and, and it kind of everything kind of folded up nicely. Who was your running mate? There was a Gettleman. No, who, who yeah, was there? T- was, there was Tim, Timmy Gettleman. Timmy uh, Gettleman yeah. was there. Um, who else was there? We, I mean, we had a lot of horses that uh, they were they're big American names. Um, mm-hmm. Matt Sher was there before me. Matt was there. Matt, Matt Shearer, he's a Canadian. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. Well, of course, of course, yeah. Uh, Under Armour there. Um, yep. Jamie Hanford, he was with the Colorado Mammoths. He's, he was there before me. Uh, Bobby Horsey, uh, he oh, played in the NLL. Yeah, the horseman. <laughs> One so of the best a lot of guys after a goal ever. 
The horse, the horsey strut, man. Yeah, that's the horsey that. strut. You just yeah. stomp around as the horsey stomp, the horsey strut. Yeah, oh. I remember that. That was awesome. Um, what was uh, the the number one bar in the Loyola bar? What was the one? Gators. 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 Yeah. G A T or like G A I T? No, G A T. Yeah, it's not uh, like Gary Gate, but that's where my love for Grand Marnie came. That's I have a fond memory of that. Uh, yeah. Now, it's, now I think it's a pizzeria. I think it's <laughs> established as a, not a not, not a good bar anymore. But, uh, <laughs> that was the the uh, every night type of hangout that all the boys. Yeah, had, for sure. Um, what was the easiest class that you knew you were always going to get an A in? Communications, isn't that what you graduated with? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and look where I am. It's almost like when you're when you're in elementary school, you're like Jim. Uh, like that was yeah. easy. Yeah. Yeah. I yeah. hate you. I hate you. <laughs> Actually, you know what? One of one of the easiest uh, classes I had in uh, Loyola was French, because they were basically learning at a, a very low level. Americans don't really speak it. And I'd, yeah. I'm almost fluent. I'd I'd gone through kindergarten through grade thirteen, and I even did a couple of years in, in university at at Mercyhurst and Gannon. Yeah. So it was like, I was basically teaching the class myself. It was, it was pretty amusing. Not the right words to the kids, but it was, it was, yeah. well, <laughs> it was comedy um, for sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, 2000, you win a man cup and you sweep um, the Victoria Shamrocks. Never heard of them. Um, that was, uh, that was your, your only manner. Yeah. Did you win them? Yeah, that was your only no. manner. Um, how fun was that to, to sweep a team? Because like to win it's great. Like you can go through the the, yeah. the war of attrition five, six, seven games, but to four bang a team like that's not an easy thing to do. No, and I mean even the, it's it's the players on those teams, especially that that I was shocked that we did. You know, you got yeah. like Ted Dowling and Gary Gate, and and their goaltenders were well established, and, and yeah. uh, you know, Doddridge is on the team, and you name it. There was four or five or six different superstars on the floor at any given time between those two teams. We were young. Um, we were untested. We, we kind of came in as a, uh, I think we were the underdogs in, in everybody's opinion, but at the end of the day, they just, the way that our team came together, um, and you can name all the guys that are on that team are pretty much all pros in the NLL now, mm-hmm. but they, they were just starting out uh, in that, you know, finding themselves as lacrosse players then. And uh, just the way we came together and, and won the four straight, it was it was unreal. Like you, like you say, um, when you're in game four, you always okay. You win three. The fourth one's usually the hardest, and it just seemed like our will had overcome that. Uh, the four, game four, and we just kind of continued to ride the wave, and and the wave never stopped. It just kind of took over the game, and and it was uh, you know happy after happily ever after after that. Is Sean Williams the greatest Whitby lacrosse player, or is that just recency bias? I think uh, I am, but um... <laughs> yes, yes! <laughs> Sean Williams is actually from Scarborough. That's why. Ah, uh, okay. Uh, Fair enough. Played in Whitby for so long. Um, uh, uh, yeah, I, I think he's the greatest, greatest Brooklyn Redmond lacrosse player. There we sure. go. There we go. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely, he is. Yeah, uh, we'll stick with the Whitby-Brooklyn connection. Who has a better reputation, Ryan McMichael or his dad, Scott Psycho McMichael? Father, I think he he's uh, he has a better reputation, uh, lacrosse reputation for sure. <laughs> uh, there's no, sorry, there uh, 
yeah. Little Fry, but uh, you know, even Ryan will say that that his dad was well liked and loved on lacrosse, on and off the lacrosse floor, hundred percent, and and feared as well mm-hmm. at the same time mm-hmm. by by opposing lacrosse players. And there's not many people that can go onto a game in and kind of turn the tides the way he did and, and have guys on the team feel like they're six five, six six, six seven, three hundred pounds because they're lining up beside Scotty McMichael, you know, Scotty's yeah. on the bat for him. You know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Uh I, I just need to throw that. Ryan's a great dude. You worked <laughs> with him with the with the Steelhawks? I did, yes. He's a handful for sure. Yeah. Yeah. He's I appreciate you sending him out west. Thanks. Now I have <laughs> to deal with him all the time. Hey, um what, what's it, like everyone talks about the ALL and, and like, I'm a big fan of it. I think it can be a great breeding ground for NLL players, uh, a great spot for guys to keep your stick in, in their hands. How have you perceived it since you've been involved? Yeah, you know what? Uh, every single year that I've been involved, this is uh, my third now, um, you, you see the league progressing. And not only um, uh, from a management standpoint, like the coaches are better now. Um, they, they're getting more experienced coaches out there. It's not like – oh, man, we need to find somebody uh, does your father coach type of stuff anymore. Mm-hmm. Uh, where, where, you know, in the first couple of years, I think it, we were, they were really scrambling for management and, and coaching and things like that. And, uh, and then that kind of in turn turns into the talent level and, and the, with the coaching that's out there and the players being coached the proper way um, and, and really kind of drilling down to what they need to be like to make the next level, mm-hmm. which is NLL. Um, a lot of these players aren't missing very much. You know, there's a small piece here or maybe an attitude change there or maybe a, a hustle change here. Mm-hmm. It's, it's a very talented league. It truly is. And, uh, you know, the players, uh, you can see it. You know, we, we have players that we lose every single game. We had five or six of them up and up and back on the Steelhawks yeah. alone that were either on a practice roster of the NLL teams or got into games. Truly, you can it's it you can see it, and it's uh, um, a great feeling when the players that you're coaching get their their goals achieved and, and make that next level. And you know, we've lost a couple of good ones to the NLL, but it, I mean, that's what our job is. Yeah. Your job, well, it makes you feel good about yourself. And and you know, we the kids work hard, and it it really is a a, a good opportunity for those that may not believe that they're not good enough for the NL, you know, get that first cut or their last cut in the tryouts and they have a bitter taste in their mouth. It's a good opportunity for those people to show the, those coaches or um, the GM or whoever cut them that they made a, made a mistake and have somebody else pick them up. How rewarding was it to win as a coach? You know, it was, it was great. It's a different feeling, you know, because mm-hmm. um, you're, you're really, you're, you're happy, you know, that the, the entire year and all the efforts of the players um, were rewarded, as you said. Um, but it, it's not, to, you know, when you're a player, you can control a lot more than when you're a coach. You can put the systems into play. You put the players on the floor, but you can't dictate, you know, how to help for them to play. You know, mm-hmm. you gotta, I, me relying on people is tough because I'm usually the one that we, was being relied on on the floor. And then you get into that position where there's a little bit of helplessness and you're like, God, okay, well, I hope I put the right player out in this particular situation. And right. luckily enough, you did um, in our first year. So it, it is a different feeling and it's, um, it, it feels just as good 
but it, you feel a little more helpless when you're on the bench than when you're on the floor, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, we, we've mentioned the, the 06 uh, NLL title with, with Colorado a couple times, and I don't mean to kind of gloss over that, but um, that game in Buffalo, we, we talked about this on, on the Zoom chat a couple weeks ago. How intense was that game, and how close was it to really boiling over, you think? Well, Buffalo, that was kind of the style they played, yeah. regardless of who they're playing, right? Yeah. And I yeah. think um, they were just an extraly, it's not even a real word, but overly. No, uh, <laughs> 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 English is the next yeah, piece of cake class. Adelaide, yeah, so. barely. Yeah. Uh, they were just, they were excessively, uh, you know, over the top that game. I think when they were riding the emotions of, the, of this crowd, uh, I tried to mention it on the Zoom chat, but um, taking that, you know, the uh, honorary face-off at the beginning of the game, um, the, the floor itself was, like, shaking up and down. It, wow. it, it, it was unreal. I've never felt a, uh, anything like that before in any of the games I've played. It, it was just so loud. And, um, the, ener- the energy was just there. It was unbelievable, but I think that, you know, worked against the Buffalo's favor at the end of the game. You look at the penalties, you look at, you know, how many times they're in the box and how we took over the game because of power plays. I think they could have played a different game and it would have been a lot, a lot closer, but at the end of the day, Hey, I'm happy with it. <laughs> I'll take, yeah, right? I'll take it on any day of the week. <laughs> um, I'll take a punch you, to the head for a championship ring for yeah, sure. Yeah, hundred percent. Have you ever hit anybody harder or cleaner than you did Sean Cable? <laughs> Apparently it wasn't clean. I got a penalty for it, but mm, yeah, it might have been a bit of a charge. But I was clean in my opinion. Yeah, no, no. Suicide no. pass. What were you supposed to do? Yeah, yeah, that was a suicide. I think Gelsvik actually tossed it up. I paid Gelsvik five bucks before the game. <laughs> to, uh, to, to oh, suicide. now we got a, Now we got a bounty gate to investigate. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. I've I've never folded somebody up uh, as bad as I had with Sean. That was. That was a highlight, uh, my, a defensive highlight of my career. That's right? Yeah, there were not many of those. Um, no, no. There are a lot of championships. We've talked Minto, Man, NLL, ALL. But, oh, we've also forgot to mention you got a, an FIL when you, Canada won in 06. And you got yep. a WILC when you won in Halifax, right? Yep. Yeah. But, but you have more major league lacrosse titles than anything else. <laughs> Yeah, How true. many in a row did you win with the Bayhawks? Uh, we won two in a row, and then one year we lost and won the next year. So you won so three on. MLL titles. Uh, no, I won two with Baltimore. Right. And then I uh, won one with Rochester and one with Toronto. Oh, so you got four? Yeah. Five? Oh. Like, <laughs> why? What, why? Were, were you just blessed, or are you, just, are you just the guy? We were the, you know what, it, you got to get the gel. The gel is, the, is what that holds the team together. And oh, I'm the gel guy. The gel. I didn't That's play very much, so but good. man, I, well, watching all those championships from the sideline, they were rewarding. <laughs> what, wait, you, you were on the sidelines for a lot of No, I no, it's not. <laughs> God, I'm so gullible sometimes. Yeah. You? It's, you know, it's the communications uh, major. And you, yeah, like, I'm, not a, I'm not a psych major or any of that. I'm terrible no, at poker. I can't read things. <laughs> Uh, no, you know what? I, uh, the first two years, uh, the one with Baltimore, uh, I, I mean, the team itself was just stacked. You, you couldn't yeah. name a all-star team who we had in that, those particular squads. 
Um, and then we, then most of then we got up to Rochester. So, uh, a lot of the Canadian guys, you know, you had John Grant Jr. and Doyle and, yeah. Wiki and Jeff yeah. Snyder and Jordan Hall. And we made an all-star game, all-star team up there along with Joe Walsh. There's a few other Americans that kicked in. Was Casey on that team? Casey. Casey was Casey on that team? Uh, Casey was on that team. Yes. Yeah. 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 And, yeah. and so you get John Grant Jr. and Casey Powell. On the, <laughs> yeah. On the same. Like, how are you going to stop these players? Then we go to Toronto. So the Rochester team moves to Toronto and then we kept kind of the same core. And then we added right. like Cody Jameson and Craig Point and a couple yeah. of the natives. And before you know it, it's, you know, they came naturally almost like we had such yeah. good teams um, that it was, it was almost, it, it was kind of a given that you're going to win that year for whatever reason. Um, you've been very blessed to be under the tutelage of two greats in, in Huntley and Bishop. What made their coaching styles and pedigree so different from everybody else's? Well, I think Dave, um, he came in later on in my career. And, and what was good about him is he let the players dictate the game. You know, he wasn't a, a guy who went and overcoached, um, he kind of realized that you were there for a reason, what you're capable of and just put you on the field. Sure. He put some systems in a couple of plays, yeah. but overall, like he just went out and said, you know what guys just go and play. And um, when you have that much talent uh, together, you're going to find a way to win. Um, and it wasn't just talent alone. We had a lot of hard nosed, hard workers on the teams as well that were talented. Mm-hmm. And I think the mix of, of what, Dave had a, you know, as a good GM, uh, picking the right players for the right positions, getting a good mix of everybody, um, not having too many selfish guys out there and having guys that were capable of checking their egos at the door. Um, I think he was, he was kind of the mastermind of, of co- picking a good team like that. And then once you have that team and all the players that you want in the positions you want them in, you don't really have to do very much after that. You just let, mm-hmm. let the horses out of the stable and let them go where Jim Bishop was the exact opposite, where he yeah. molded you into that particular horse and say, no, if I went in and I said, no, I'm a cow, he's like, no, you're a horse, and I'm going to make <laughs> you a horse and go have a choice because I'm going to tell you and I'm going to get on you, I'm going to be on your ass for the next six, seven, eight years until you believe you're a horse. And, uh, you know, it didn't take long for us all to believe that we were thoroughbreds out there. Just the way that he, he his passion and, and his coaching style was – on you at all times and uh you know probably he'd be considered uh uh not politically correct nowadays and <laughs> mm-hmm. crying and parents like he'd have a he jim bishop would have a sit down with the parents that hey if you guys uh, can't take it now take your yeah. child and get out because it's going to be tough on these kids and i'm going to be tough on these kids you know if winning is not your number one priority prerogative you guys can leave now there's the door so that was his. That was his uh, entry interview for the the parents, and yeah. some of them did leave. Uh, but you know what? There's a reason why he's the most successful coach in the history of coaching, and Absolutely. and it's just you know he and that's the way he coached anybody. He picked up when he picked up the uh, the Montreal team uh, in the I guess it was the M I M I M I L yeah way back yeah and way back and he coached those guys the exact same way. Yeah. Um, he just knows one way and, and one way only. And sometimes it brushes people the wrong way, especially if you're older and you're not used to it. But 
he was successful anywhere he goes. You can't uh, you can't knock him for that. Uh, your first couple years in the NLL, you were a New York Saint. Um, probably one of the best logos the NLL has ever had. <laughs> so St. Bernard? Yeah, I love that. Yeah. That logo's unreal. Um, don't you have that what, tattoo on your inner thigh? My inner thigh? Yeah. yeah. We don't tell those kind of stories on this podcast. Oh, oh sorry. I, thought I have a shredder on my shin or my calf. <laughs> um, how troublesome or dark were those years in New York? Because you guys weren't bad. You guys were an okay no. team. You guys were Yeah, okay. we... We weren't the worst team. We weren't the best by any means. But off but the floor, I mean. Off the floor, it was it was tough. Um, I was uh, I was warned by my good buddy G Nash, who was there a year before me. Yeah. Um, I knew I was going to be their pick, the, the number one pick for New York, and mm-hmm. G kind of warned me and said, "You know what? This <laughs> isn't the place you want to be, and, and here's why." And it was difficult for a lot of those players because they don't really have you didn't have a choice back then, right? Yeah. It's not like, yeah. It's like, okay, well, I'd like to play for somebody else. And, and the owner, unfortunately, was more stubborn than anybody. Was it Gongus? It was Gongus. It was yeah. Mike Gongus. <laughs> and um, yeah. he had another owner who, who was kind of a silent owner who was great. His name was Charlie. Um, and the basically, at the end of the day, uh, the, the players weren't being paid uh, yeah. or uh, not on time or at all. And that yeah. kind of went brought us to becoming uh, unrestricted free agents uh, in choosing Colorado two years later was because our checks were bouncing. Um, you know, and, and not only that, but you heard every excuse in the book. It was no apologies. It was just, you know, oh, well, it's because of this or it's because of that. Meanwhile, it's just because the guy didn't want to pay us. Or, yeah. 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 Um, uh, you know, it, yeah. Go yeah, it was tough, but uh, you know, I was fortunate enough that I didn't have to live there and I wasn't stuck there. I was still going to school in Baltimore and, Right. I was flying back and forth with my Mark Fry and uh, uh, who was it? Shearer was on the team as well. Uh, John Brothers. So we kind of had a, a good group of guys that were carpooling or flying together yeah. to games and practices that we could kind of escape where there were a, couple, a lot of guys uh, that were living there that couldn't, which kind of sucked. Yeah, you guys kind of set a precedent with that. You, like you guys almost like fought. Did you guys fall out and file a lawsuit or take them to, to get your free agency? Yeah, yeah. Well, it was we filed. So, G being uh, good in the PLPA and knowing a couple of guys like Johnny Rosa and, and yeah. who whatnot, um, basically filed a a court or a grievance more or less. Right. Yeah. And it was a grievance for you know the, the X amount of players together, the guys who weren't being paid. Yeah. Um, and so the, I think everybody could have probably jumped on that bandwagon if they wanted to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it could have been the uh, a giant grievance, but it was at least me, me and G and Nick Carlson, uh, yeah. we were all we both banded together because we had the same agent and Rich Furlong. And he's like, no, we're not putting up with this anymore. We're, we're getting you guys yeah. out of the and stuck to the plan. And, and that's what happened. And you guys all ended up in Colorado, but a couple of years, you spent like a handful of years in Colorado. You win that championship. You get flipped to Edmonton, but via Rochester, did you ever wish that you got to be a Nighthawk? You know what? It, it was, uh, we were in Hawaii actually at the Hawaii Invitational, oh, and um, in October there, yeah. In October, yeah. And John Grant was my roommate, um, who was with Rochester at the time, and and oh, he was, he's um, he's a character of people don't know. <laughs> he's very emotional and, and moody at times. He was. He heard that I was traded to Rochester, and came 
woke me up and he was all pumped and high five. Oh, and, and then, uh, the afternoon he, <laughs> he was moping around. <laughs> the trade went from Rochester. It really got flipped over, uh, out to Edmonton. And, uh, it went from like the highest, the highest kite in the world to, uh, you know, the lowest, lowest one you could possibly think of. And, uh, yeah, kind of like Linus wandering around, the you know, miserable <laughs> or Eeyore, uh, yeah. you know, on the, on the beach, just kind of moping around. So moping it was, around. it was a little tough. I would like to have played with a couple of those guys, but uh, you know, fortunately enough, I did get to play with them later on when I was with the Rochester yes. uh, Rattlers and uh, guys like uh, Pat Dutton and uh, a few of the other guys that that I hadn't played with before. It was, it was nice. It was, uh, it was Rochester is a great city, you know. Yeah, um, and I had a blast there. And then Junior lived two four or yeah, two floors below me. We had a great time. <laughs> That's awesome. We we uh we slept a lot, uh didn't didn't drink at all. Um, nope, and I'm we're sure. in bed early uh many, many nights. We actually became near professional golden tea players. Oh wow. Oh yeah. Like, well, you're gonna have to come over and 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 uh put Tuesday nights, box down on the table, buddy. Tuesday nights we used to have uh practice in Buffalo. So it would be myself, Andy Turner, uh, Derek Miloski, and Junior. We'd all carpool down. I'd have to drive because I was the rookie and the young guy. And then we'd all come back. So we'd have to drive to North Tonawanda and Buffalo, practice there, drive all the way back to Rock, about an hour. And then we'd go straight to Nathaniel's, which was the bar right by. Oh, yeah. Nathaniel, the Blue I Cross. Nathaniel's. Yeah. And, uh, and we would probably put 20 bucks each in that golden tea machine and just run the corner. And we'd That's stay there and – yeah, it was awesome. Um, why not, eh? Why, why wouldn't you? Uh, two more questions here for you. Um, talk me through the phone call to get you back to Colorado when you were in Edmonton. Um, I was in Vegas. Uh, I guess I traveled a lot. I don't know why. <laughs> <laughs> all these crappy places in Hawaii. Yeah, Texas. apparently. Um, I was in Vegas. We, we in a lacrosse tournament in Vegas? No, no. I think this is just one of our weekends off we had in Edmonton. Right. And it was a it was a mid season trade, yeah, so right. um, it was basically that received a call from uh, Derek Keenan said you know what uh, we're looking to you know rebuild and it, it was about a salary at that point and um, I, I understood I mean lacrosse is a business but it was it was a tough pill to swallow because of the, how I left got left out of Colorado in the first place and um, I never thought I should have been traded uh, yeah. to make, make quite frank and. Um, once again, that was a business decision. Uh, I don't know how they changed their mind so quickly. Uh, <laughs> maybe the business model changed in 180 yeah. degrees. My salary no longer was an issue uh, coming back into Colorado. And, um, you know, it was the first couple of, of uh, meetings with Steve Govett were a little awkward and uh, sheepish, if you will. Like, you know, they kind of avoid each other and you don't want to be, you know, making it obvious to the team that you're uncomfortable. But mm-hmm. at the end of the day, he, we came in and said, you know what, we're here for the same reason. I'm here to win a championship. You brought me in for that. Let's focus on that and, uh, you know, put our whatever happened in the past behind us. And uh, and we went around but, uh, that year. And it was uh, – we, we had a decent year um, mm-hmm. I, uh, when I came back. And then – John Grant joined joined the team uh, a little bit after that, and that uh, made me, you know, like happy with like, the man high in the kite. Mm-hmm. Like you was in Hawaii, but uh, we didn't trade him away. So that was uh, another blessing that I got was to play with him in Colorado, and uh, you know, the team together once again. And when I got back, it's you know, it's like family. So they 
the guys made it a lot easier on their transition coming back into Colorado. The guys weren't the same guys. I don't know if I would have uh, had yeah. a good, you know, a, a very reasonable time there. Uh, okay, I lied. Two more questions. Um, do you feel, and this is and this is a missing one because you know, talking about um, you know Michael Jordan wanting to come back and Tiger Woods wanting to come back and all these guys that are injured but persevere and come back. Now you weren't injured, but those guys always say they want to go out on their terms. You yeah. feel like in 2013, after playing you know 11 years in the league, that you went out on your own terms, or do you think you probably could have kept going? Absolutely not. I uh, I didn't go out on my own terms. Um, and, and there's no lies. You know, I don't hold any punches. I was. I don't remember the last time somebody sat a captain uh, in the last two or three games and into the playoffs in, in the history of any sports sporting mm-hmm. events uh, that I've ever been or witnessed or watched. Um, and it was just. Uh, I don't, I don't, I don't know why. To be honest with you, I'm still at a loss of words. I didn't really speak with Coach Hamley about it afterwards, but um, I knew I could see the writing on the wall. You know, when you mm-hmm. sit a captain and uh, you know you go in the playoffs, and I'm sitting in the crowd instead of sitting on the bench, it's a tough pill to swallow for sure. And uh, the the following year, I wasn't even asked back to try out. I'm not sure why, um, but at the end of the, at the end of the year, um, at the end of that particular year, I had injured my. Uh, uh, PCL in the in the summer league, and um, I was on my way back rehabbing, getting it back, and just about about a month or two from shedding the actual brace. And uh, Rochester offered me a, an opportunity uh, to play, and and under certain circumstances, um, and I said, you know what, I, I don't. That's that's just not the way I work. I don't I don't go and play under certain circumstances or or abide by certain ways of of, you know, we were going to maybe play this game and not play another game. I'm like, well, that's just not the type of player I am, right? So yeah. if you're, I'm in, I'm in. If I'm not, cut me and, and I'll, uh, I'll figure it out myself. And, uh, the knee didn't, uh, it didn't hold up as well as I like, would like to have. But at the end of the year, you know, once you're cut and you, you kind of get or let go from the, from the Rochester team, you start getting in your own head and you realize that, Okay, well, maybe you're not as good as you think you are. <laughs> and and you start, you know, once you, it's all you really know. Lacrosse is all you really know in competing and and being, you know, a top pick. And, and never, ever once does it cross your mind that you're not good enough to make the team. And that was the first time that I wasn't good enough to make a team. And it kind of, it kind of wore on me for a bit. You know, it's, uh, it's tough to, it's tough to swallow when, uh, you're used to, things a certain way and then it doesn't go your way you start second guessing a few things and getting down yourself and I think I did that a lot more than I should have but at the end of the day uh, I still think I could have played a couple more years for sure so start to come back now we got a whole year till next season starts. I'm in I'm, yeah I mean I'm in the best Grand Marnier shape I've ever been in and that's when I played my best that's when I played my best <laughs> alright uh, last question truly honest um, number nine why? Why is it, why is that your number? Well, I grew up and I uh I one of my favorite hockey players was was uh, Joe Sackick, you know, and he was always number 9. And another one of my favorite hockey players was Stevie Eisenman, mm-hmm. and he was 19. Mm-hmm. So it was either one or the other and then uh Paul Sally um when he got to to the uh, the team, he same way he loves 
Stevie Weiserman. Stevie Weiserman, yeah, Stevie Y. <laughs> what are you bet? What are you? Who was the president? Was that Bush that said that? Uh, Bush guy? Stevie Yearsman? Stevie Yearsman? Bushy. Um, but yeah, so he wanted 19, and I, I had no problem giving his last nine was available. And nine was. I wasn't always nine. I mean, I play. I was 12 on team camp. Yeah, you were 12 with Matty Shearer was nine. But for the most of the teams I played, I was always nine. And, you know, superstitious or not, or maybe just laziness, you don't want to find another number. But hockey and lacrosse, it was always just number nine. Um, Wait, maybe I'm confused, but wasn't Sackick 19 too? Yeah, he was. So you just said Sackey four nine. So now you're lying to me. Oh, geez. did I say, sorry? Nineteen, yes. Yeah, Nineteen yeah. was a number before, and that's when Paul Sally, Paul Sally came. Yeah, in Paul came and took nine, and I, I got and they both had nine, and I could have been number one, but I, I'm not that good. So you were a ni- you were a nineteen guy first. I was a nineteen guy. Yes. It's the greatest number of all, isn't it? Nineteen, just, just it's, it's I a think perfect it, number. I think it's right up there, man. I mean, ninety nine is pretty good, but <laughs> great. It's not bad. <laughs> He's okay. He's okay. He's okay. Uh, buddy, this is always a pleasure. We uh, we catch up at least once a season. Um, I know you're doing great things out there with the Steelhawks. You have a great path ahead of you. Uh, hopefully that Hall of Fame call comes whenever we get a Hall of Fame thing going again. Um, but stay safe to have the family for me. And, again, appreciate your time, buddy. My oh, man, no problem, Teddy. There is Gavin Prout. Um, so many different areas that we could start. Um, first of all, when you say your favorite number is something and it's because another guy, a hockey guy or whatever, wore that number, you got to make sure his number's right. Come on. Joe Sackick's 19 all day long, Gav. Um, we, we talked about the, the Rochester trade and how interesting that would have been um, if it ever did happen. But I remember when he was traded away from Colorado and there was a lot of unhappy people. And then when he came back from Edmonton to Colorado, how happy um, the fans of the Mammoth were to get Gavin back. Uh, th- that is um, a real great story to come full circle. And then they retire his jersey, and it's still hanging up there in the rafters at the Pepsi Center. Uh, he meant so much to that organization and helping them win their only title. Um, I know he, he hated to leave, and he loved every moment when he was able to come back. Gavin was... He was an ultimate chirper, but he was one of those guys that could back his chirps up and he could give it, he could take it, he could shut you up real quick. I remember the the fight against Jimmy Quinlan when Quinlan was with Edmonton and they were in Colorado playing and Quinlan was arguably one of the best chirpers of all time. Maybe not the best, but he just ran his mouth more than most. He was actually quite good, but... There was a moment in that game where Quinlan was just running his mouth, running his mouth, and Gavin said, you know what? Okay, now's the time to to put an end to this. And Quinlan challenged him. Gavin made sure he got the thumbs up from the bench. He threw a, they did a little do-si-do, circle-circle. Then he throws a right uppercut and then a right hook that pops Quinlan on the button, drops him to the ground. Quinlan gets right back up, but... You'd never really want to tangle with Gavin. He was a tough, tough son of a bitch. And there's that moment inside the Pepsi Center. Then there's also the hit on Sean Cable. Go to YouTube, Google Gavin Prout hit, and it'll be right there. 
It's a massive buddy pass like we talked about with him. A huge buddy pass from Gelsvik to Cable. Cable catches it with over his shoulder, not really looking. And Prouder takes four or five strides and just drops him. Clean hit, except for maybe the charging part. And you know it's a clean hit when no one really takes overt offense to it. Sure, everyone came to Cable's defense, but it's not like guys were running with their gloves off ready to kill Gavin. They knew that their buddy got lit up in a suicide pass. They have to come to his defense, but it's not like Gavin got a bad name because of that hit. But that's just how Gavin played. Played right on the line, as hard as he could, every moment that he could. And a lot of that comes from being a, quote, Whitby robot. That's how I always refer to those group of Whitby kids because that's what all the Ontario guys that played against them at the time referred to them as. And Gavin agreed. Jim Bishop made them into robots. He convinced cows they were horses. And they did everything systematically. Every movement and pass had a purpose. And they were one of the best junior clubs ever during that run. They were going toe-to-toe with Burnaby and Six Nations in the, what's that, late, two, late 1990s. And man, were they good. And they were just by the book, played the game right, and anybody that you met from that era all did it the same. They ran a pick and roll as clean as anybody. They played defense smart. They understood the nuances of the game. And all of that comes from the teachings of the legendary Jim Bishop. It's, an all, it's always a pleasure to talk to Prouder. We could have talked for hours and hours and hours. I have 15 other questions we never even got to. We'll save them for next time. And next time is seven days away. I don't know what news we'll have to report then, but it could be new. It could be great. It could be disappointing. But that is the world we live in today. Make sure you head over to the Lacrosse Flash website. Go get your swag, whether you're a big team guy, a fan of the Codfather, or just want a sticker. LacrosseFlash.com, get it all, plus get all your podcasts and stories from there as well. Uh, We are making a conglomeration, stripped, lacrosse classified, and the OTCB. We'll find you there. Also, check out the new Instagram page, OTCB Podcast. We'll be posting clips, highlights, and more there every week as well. My name is Teddy Jenner. Find me on Twitter, at OffTheCrossBar. Email me, teddy.jenner at gmail.com. Stay safe. Keep smiling. And until we speak again, be excellent to each other. 